Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host, our first mate, our Gilligan, Ronnie Nathan. (laughs) We were talking about that last night. And we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And by the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review. uh, Make some comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And it really does help us in the rankings. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And without further ado, please welcome today's guest, R.C. Sproul Jr. Sproul rhymes with soul. Uh, R.C. is a Christian writer and theologian who's written over a dozen. How many books has it been that, that you've published now? Oh, it's uh, so, somewhere between uh, 12 and 15. It depends on whether you count the books I edited, whether okay. you count some children's books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some it's good stuff. Uh, not, not enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been diving in. It's uh, it cover a wide range of topics from homeschooling to economics, uh, some theological deep dives, including uh, most recently a really wonderful tribute, partly to your earthly father, renowned apologist and pastor of the same name. Uh, but also a tribute to your heavenly father. It's called Growing Up with R.C. And I've, again, found it to be just heartwarmingly candid, reverent, and in places brutally honest about your own journey. Um, Dr. Sproul, R.C., thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm happy to be with you. Yeah, happy to have you here. Well, I thought a really good place to start was for for our listeners who aren't familiar with you uh, to, to share a little bit about your background. And um, <laughs> the day that you were born was quite a momentous day for your family. And those, well, those couple of days thereafter. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. My, uh, father's mother, by the time that I was born was a widow and she had two deep, uh, desires in her heart. She wanted to see the family name continued. Uh, my father being the only son in that line. And she wanted to see my father ordained to gospel ministry. And on the day of July 1st, 1965, she received in the mail uh, the dress that she had ordered and the invitations for my father's ordination service. She also received a phone call uh, from my father announcing my birth. I was born on that day. So those two lifelong uh, dreams of my grandmother came to pass on that day. And that evening she passed on to glory. Oh, wow. Uh, So my father who lost his, his father when he was in high school, uh, lost his mother the day that I was born. Now, my father became not just a minister of the gospel, though I should never say just, uh, but he also became a theologian and a writer and uh, was uh, started a ministry in Western Pennsylvania for training lay people in theology. Uh, 
Uh, it was kind of, for those of you who are familiar with Labrie, uh, Francis Schaeffer's ministry, there was some overlap, but some distinctions. Uh, Labrie being a little bit more apologetic, a little bit more uh, evangelistic, and the Ligonier Valley Study Center being uh, more for training. Parachurch workers were trained there. there. This was in the early 70s, so there was just a lot of wandering souls, some Jesus people uh, that just sort of came out into the middle of nowhere out in the country, and my father taught him, and it was a great, wonderful way to, to grow up. Uh, I developed an interest in high school in his interests in theology. Um, at the same time, developed an interest in uh, economics and ended up going to college at Grove City, which was uh, right down our line theologically and uh, politically or economically and had a wonderful time there. Uh, went to graduate school studying English at the University of Mississippi and then ended up in seminary in Orlando and started working for now Ligonier Ministries, which had moved from Western Pennsylvania in a moment of folly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about your your but but so you as a kid, you were growing up around the uh, Willie Stargells and Dave Parkers of the Christian yes. faith. Exactly right. Yes, the Willis Stargells and the Dave Parkers of the Christian Faith. Francis Schaefer did yeah. come and visit when I was a kid, and uh, uh, John Warwick Montgomery was there, and Dr. Packer, and John Gerstner, and just all, all the, the big names, and uh, it, it's still been that way, because once I started working with Ligonier, I got to uh, interact with a lot of those fellows. Eventually, I became the editor of Ligonier's magazine, Table Talk, did that for about 10 years. Uh, and eventually became a professor uh, at Reformation Bible College and one of Ligonier's teaching fellows. Yeah, you did a lot of school, a lot of school. Could you, um, did you know in advance that you wanted to pursue a similar path as as your dad? How, how early did I that really didn't. Honestly, I, I left part of my academics out because after college, I enrolled in law school at the University of San Francisco. And I attended that school for a uh, whole of six weeks. Oh, six weeks, you said? Six whole weeks of law school. It took me that long to figure out I don't want to be there. Oh, man. And uh, when I mentioned that I studied uh, for a master's degree in English at Ole Miss, I didn't finish that either. And so after two failures to secure a graduate degree, I thought to myself, you know, I've been pretty well trained already theologically. Maybe if I go to seminary, I can uh, whip out one of these uh, graduate degrees yeah. and ended up moving to Orlando and rolling in reform seminary there and started working at Ligonier, which led to working with table talk magazine, which led to other writing opportunities, which led to uh, some small way following in my father's footsteps. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when I tell people I do what my father uh, did, I say we're, we're the same in the sense that both the space shuttle and a paper airplane are man-made <laughs> flying machines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I also heard you say that you had uh, you don't have any major theological differences with your dad. And that possibility is completely alien to me. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask, well, what what kinds of theological conclusions did did you arrive at over the time of your schooling or were many of your convictions already well formed by the time you started 
some of your graduate degrees? Oh, very much. They're already very well formed. Uh, and I was blessed to uh, have as a pastor when I was a kid, uh, a gentleman who went on to become the founding librarian of a seminary and then founded his own seminary. Uh, when I was in high school, I was sitting in the adult Sunday school classes with my father's mentor teaching live and in person. Uh, so yeah, I was taking all this stuff and I was reading my father's books. I was actually uh, often reading them in manuscript form mm. uh, long before I ever went to seminary. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, developed some of his ideas or, or, or embraced almost all of them. Now there, there were some differences and they typically, and I told him this, I said, dad, I want you to understand that anytime I disagree with you, it's because I believe that what I believe necessarily flows from something we agree on. So we may disagree at this implication of this truth, yeah. but on this truth, we're on the same page. And I, I've often felt like I don't really have the uh, in, intelligence that my father has or had, and but I also didn't have the burdens that he had. So I always felt like, you know, I can, I can go places that he can't go. I can I can follow logic where it leads without being afraid that I'm going to end up in some place weird and going to turn the whole evangelical world upside down because of it. Because I have I'm two not... questions based on that. Marcy. Yeah. Um, a, you never had uh, an adolescent rebellion against your father. B, can you give a specific concrete example of something you agreed with him? Um, fundamentally that led you to a disagreement sure, a concrete example. Sure. Let me uh, go first one first. Uh, you know, I don't know how unusual this is, but I, I never had a period in my life where I didn't love my father, didn't want his approval, didn't uh, rejoice to spend time with him. So that kind of, overt and open rebellion, that kind of, you know, screaming in his face kind of rebellion? Uh, definitely not. However, there were uh, certainly things that I wanted to do that he wouldn't approve of. And so I was in many ways as an adolescent uh, living out that uh, quip that uh, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue, that I was trying to present myself to my father as better than I was uh, because I didn't want to disappoint him or my mother, uh, but I did want to do the things that I wanted to do. So I, I was trying to uh, foolishly keep my feet in, in both places, and that didn't really go too terribly well. Now, uh, the second question it might be the, the, the clearest example would be something that's a little bit uh, esoteric theologically. Uh, I learned at my father's feet, at his mentor's feet, uh, about the work of Jonathan Edwards, who argues that we always choose according to our strongest desire. And uh, my father believes that I believe that uh, it's important to both of us. Uh, but that led me to uh, a 
rarer view inside our intramural little theological camp uh, that's called supralapsarianism that sort of gets God a little bit closer to or affirms God's being a little bit closer to the beginning of evil in the world. Not that God is evil or has evil, but that God uh, is sovereign over evil. And it's not, you know, there's no thing outside of his control that happens that he's has to react to, so to speak. And so we would go back and forth over that kind of issue. Uh, politically, I would say a similar thing where, uh, you know, we both shared a deep, deep conviction on the importance of limited government. Uh, and that led me to a, uh, a view in terms of foreign policy that was uh, much more uh, historically isolationist uh, rather than interventionist. Uh, so sort of my, my sort of political conservatism was a little more abstract and libertarian and his was a little more I call it populist. Yeah. That's me. Uh, but he was a little more, uh, you know, uh, uh, big government Republican war hawk kind of guy. Mm. Interesting. Um, last question, because I don't want to take the, I don't want Corey to get angry at me. <laughs> uh, I was fascinated by the first example you gave uh, because it kind of keys into the question I'm going to ask later in the podcast. Um, so in other words, if I get this right, um, your position is that Satan is uh, an angel of God's creation right. and does God's work, as opposed to being Satan as a fallen angel. Oh, no, who, I, he's a fallen angel. No well, question about it. Angel, but he's not he's not God's foil. He's doing God's work. He is God's foil and he's doing God's work would be how I would say it. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue is, from my perspective, that as Genesis 1, 1, a begins with in the beginning, God in the beginning, God which reminds us that what's that? If you, if you can give me in the beginning, God, the rest of the Bible takes care of itself. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. If you get that, if you understand that once there was God and nothing else, then it seems to me that we have to acknowledge that God is sovereign over everything else or, or else you have an effect without a sufficient cause. You have it as a man. What's that? Isn't that what God is? God is an effect without a sufficient. Oh, no, he's not an effect at all. He's not an effect in the least. God doesn't change. Right. So God is not an effect. He is the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. Okay. You know, you know what came to mind when you were talking about, and I think I, I'm saying this right, supra, supra lapsarianism? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dad, did you ever read East of Eden? Yes. So a lot of that book deals with a version of this, um, how they are looking up. Is it, um, I think it's a study uh, largely of Genesis four or a, like he takes the colors of, of Genesis four as sort of a palette from which Steinbeck, the writer is kind of repainting another version of that story in a few different ways. 
And um, RC, remind me of the verse, but I think it's something along the lines of uh, sin is crouching out the door and the, the next. Waiting to, yeah, uh, that's uh, God speaking to Cain, Cain after yeah. the fall. Right, right, right. And the word that they do, it, it, he spends like a hundred pages dealing with this, the, what comes next. Uh-huh. Thou blank overcome it. Um, and it's a study of like how different denominations or different theological dispositions would translate that word. Uh-huh. And thou must overcome it. Thou shall overcome it. Is it command? Is it a promise? Uh-huh. And Steinbeck's conclusion, I'm giving away. Uh, so this is a spoiler alert uh, for folks <laughs> who do want to read the book. But Steinbeck's conclusion, or at least the character's conclusion, was thou mayest overcome it. Uh-huh. So it's a more nuanced way to look at it where God has already created everything. Um, and he's also, I guess it's a, also an argument for free will and the degree to which that, you know, human beings or God's creation participates in, in the story. Is that, am I right. making any sense? You are. And, and you know, I would make a distinction just, and it'd be interesting to see if Steinbeck did too. I have actually never read East of Eden. Uh, I have probably read a good half dozen uh, Steinbeck works and uh, nor have I seen the movie, though I've seen uh, plenty of uh, James Dean. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, w- I want to be careful. One of the ways that I help people understand God's activity in space and time and God's sovereignty and once there was God and nothing else is this. I ask people to imagine being William Shakespeare and you're William Shakespeare and you're at your desk and you're not just a playwright. You're also an actor. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're writing out your play and you probably know which role you're going to play when this play becomes, goes on stage. Yeah. And so you're writing out the lines that you're going to say. Well, when we speak of God's ultimate transcendent sovereignty, uh, the language we might use is his decretive will, that will by which he brings to pass whatsoever comes to pass. This has all been determined. We're told that before uh, one began, all of our days were numbered, that God laid out our lives before we were even born. So that's the writer. But people in my sort of branch of the evangelical church who are eager and zealous to affirm that can very easily fall into a form of of, uh, deism Mm. where they believe, well, God wrote the story and he, he pushed the first domino and the dominoes are just going out as they're going to do. And he's not active. But God is also an actor in this story. Right. He's engaged in this, right? He's here and he's now. And so I, I, I want to be careful to protect both of those realities. That's interesting. Where, what space does free will play in this? Well, under what I'm talking about, it depends on, I would argue that free will, libertarian free will is not something real. Uh, that, because what it ends up meaning is, an, again, an effect without a cause. Uh, that we are free to do what we are to act according to our nature, but we're not free to not act according to our nature. We're free to do what we want, uh, 
We're free in one sense to do what we don't want, but in another sense, we're always going to choose what we want at the moment, given our choices. As I have described it for people, if you put a bowl of Brussels sprouts in front of me and a bowl of ice cream in front of me, I, I can't just decide, I'm going to like the Brussels sprouts more. I'm going to enjoy the Brussels sprouts more. Uh, I'm pretty much certain to eat the ice cream every single time. Now, eventually, if that keeps happening, I'm going to look at the ice cream and I'm going to look at the Brussels sprouts and I'm going to realize if I keep eating that ice cream, I'm going to choke to death on my pants. They're, 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 they're pulling, squeezing it in my stomach and making me uncomfortable. Yeah. I need to eat these Brussels sprouts. And so now it's, you know, if it's just Brussels sprouts versus ice cream, it's easy. Ice cream. If it's ice cream and none of my clothes fit, or Brussels sprouts and my clothes fit, then it might get a little bit more difficult. But either way, in the moment, I will always choose what I desire more. That's a, maybe this is a strained transition, but I I, I did want to bring up um, an elephant in the room. Uh, anyone who might do a search on your name, uh, there are there have been controversies associated that, that you've been involved with. Um, and, and as I, as I read through them, I put, this is oversimplifying the matter, but there are two general buckets, if you will. One bucket is to be fair, self-inflicted. Right. Uh, some of these controversies you brought on yourself. And frankly, RC, you know, as I even read in the introduction to your latest book, Growing Up With RC, it really is heartwarming. Um, and, and I gleaned such uh, empathy and respect for the degree to which you were willing to be candid um, and transparent uh, and and humble in the face of, you know, the inevitable. We we are we are Christians, but we're not Christ. You know, we're we're human beings, and and all of our failings. So that, that um, I, I I did gain such a respect for your willingness to be transparent in that regard. There's another bucket of controversies that, you know, frankly, I, I don't know what's true, what's not true, but what 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 was clear is that uh, some of it you didn't bring on yourself. Um, you know, the idea that you're writing a blog for the Pittsburgh Pirates and there was a dog pile on the rabbit to the degree that the the company couldn't, you know, needed to part ways with you. I, like yeah. some of that is garbage. It's just, so my question is, um, I, I gather that you deal with those two buckets in very different ways. I'm almost more curious about how you deal with the unfair attacks. Well, I, that's really very insightful. And uh, I, I may be thinking more about it now than I have before because of your question. But I, I would say at the end of the day, uh, one of the, the one of the best things about the Christian gospel is there is no reason for me to hide my sins. None whatsoever. The whole, I mean, when I, when I think about the things that are written about me on the internet, I think, oh man, I've done far worse than that stuff. Mm. That's small potatoes. And the devil knows more about what's wrong with me than what, than the internet does. And my heavenly father knows more about what's wrong with me than the devil does. And while the devil keeps spewing these accusations, my heavenly father keeps saying, not guilty not guilty over and over and over again. 
uh, when, when I see people and this happened, I don't know if you know this, but I, I was recently on a, uh, a podcast talking about evangelical people falling into grievous sin. Uh, in fact, we've talked uh, a fair amount about Ravi yeah. and uh, I was, it was sort of a pseudo debate kind of format. Not that that's way too strong of a word for it, but there was someone on the other side who sort of represented the, uh, what's the word for it? Let's be very cautious about not lifting people back up too quick. That's a nice way of putting it. Okay. Uh, and we, I think we got along just fine and had quite a bit in common, but my, my, what I'm trying to say is what worries me is not what people think about me. It's what people think about the gospel. Yeah. That if people feel like, Hey, he can't be forgiven. It, it offends people. The idea that someone who would put his two precious little boys in the backseat of his car and go drive down the road completely smashed out of his mind, who has this reputation as a Christian leader that anyone could do that could ever possibly uh, eat something as simple as be on this podcast with you. I, I'm not. I'm not speaking at the World Christian Congress. <laughs> I'm just doing a podcast. I'm just talking to you. But the idea that that could happen is just in horrifying to people. Yeah. And yet, as I say in the book, the reason that is is because we don't know our Bibles. The Bible is chock full of people who have already come to saving faith who've already been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and who fall into the most grievous of sins. It happens all and the yet, time. And yet, and yet RC, um, this morning, the internet is filled with gotcha stories about Democratic mayors who instituted COVID protocols <laughs> and then went to visit their relatives on Lucas. Thanksgiving. Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's exactly the same thing that you're talking about. Just we're not talking about um, going to heaven or hell. We're talking about politicians. Well, there's certainly a lot of overlap there. And I'll, I'll agree with you here that that if it had been a bunch of Republican mayors, I venture to guess that most of the people that were upset would not be upset. And most <laughs> of the people who are not upset would be upset yeah, that we sucks. have all of us. We struggle with the of double standards and we want to judge our enemies more harshly than we do our friends. We all do. I mean, you know, exhibit a would be uh, the, the sexual accusations made against Donald Trump versus the sexual accusations made against Bill Clinton. Yeah. And you see, uh, for instance, a lot of folks on the left side of the aisle saying, oh, what horrible hypocrites you Republicans are, because when it was Bill Clinton, you kept saying it mattered, it mattered, it mattered. And that's true. That's a gotcha moment. But here's the thing. It works the other way, too. You kept saying it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. I'm one of the few people who said they're both scum. Good. <laughs> well, that's probably a key to how you guys could get along. Speaking as an Orthodox Jew yeah. who's been married to the same woman for 53 oh, years. That's uh, about 30, uh, excuse me, 29 minutes. We have a clock going for how long does it take Ronnie to say as a Jew? <laughs> well, so. You know, to be to be to be fair to the Jew on the episode. OK, the only reason I'm here 
uh, is because I'm Jewish. No, it's because yes. of your your uh, dashing good looks. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's when we go on YouTube. <laughs> My dad's even come around to saying he regrets voting for Clinton in '96, which is he voted for Dole. Uh-huh. I also regret. I also regret voting for Obama, but only because had Romney won, we wouldn't have been stuck with Trump for four years. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I want to ask you a theological question. Sure. Yeah. Um, Oh, you want to ask RC, not me? (laughs) Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, since you're here, (laughs) since you're here, well, why don't we ask RC? (laughs) I, I, I did a little, I did a little research for this podcast and something that caught my attention, um, and maybe I don't have it right, but you say, I think, that the reason for creation is to give, let me, let me get it right, because I wrote it down for myself. It has to do um, with wrath, right? Yeah, that the reason for creation is to give, to justify God's ability to be wrathful. I would say that I, A, did not say that or write that, but I have said that that is included, that God creates for the purpose of manifesting his glory. And one of the ways, among many, of the one, one of the ways that God manifests his glory is in the execution of his justice. Right. The way that I understood that, uh, first of all, yeah, it's it's always problematic when you slice out three or four words um, as if that's the whole concept. So you have to read contextually. Obviously we got to do that when we're reading the Bible, but it's also fair to do it when we're reading, um, you know, a theologian's work in, in mm-hmm. your case. So the way I understood that and correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, God, God's crowning creation is human beings, right? Man, Adam and Eve. Um, and, uh, by saying something along the lines of worthy of his wrath, um, you know, if uh, another creature transgresses, it's not necessarily worthy of God's wrath. Like, you know, if you're if you're a non-sentient creature, um, h- how do you even transgress? Right. Whereas, I, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Well, I, I think you're, you're you have a point, but I don't know that it necessarily touches on the, the crux of the issue. You know, I want to give you a biblical example of this. How many times uh, is the message that God sends through Moses to Pharaoh Yeah. for this reason? This is God speaking. For this reason, I lifted you up. So God says explicitly, I put Pharaoh in a position of power so that he could act corruptly so that I could manifest my justice in tearing him down. This is, you know, again, this is a glorious thing when God comes and smotes the bad guy. Uh, No question about it. And he can't do that without bad guys. Well, I mean, here's the thing. This is a real issue in Talmudic commentary. When you talk about Pharaoh, um, if Pharaoh's not exercising free will, he's not deserving of justice or uh, punishment. 
So the issue of free will is essential to the story. On the other hand, somewhere between the seventh and eighth plague, it says in Torah yeah. that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. So now the, the, the conversation among rabbis is, doesn't that change the whole story? Did God rob Pharaoh of free will? And if he did, how could he then go ahead and punish him? Well, let me see if I can uh, tie some things together here. And I mean, I have the answer, but I'm sure you're, you probably, you're probably going to be wrong. You and Corey are going to be wrong. It's with the been known That's to happen. Okay. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's suppose that on the night I got pulled over for driving under the influence with my boys in the car. Suppose I got out and the officer said, have you been drinking? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you're weaving in and out of these different lanes and you've run into this barrier over here and you're driving 20 miles an hour down this interstate and you're creating a hazard for other people and you could have hurt your own sons and yada, yada, yada. And I said to him, oh, yeah, (laughs) of course. I mean, I'm I'm drunk. I mean, if you had as much to drink as I had, you would be doing the exact same thing. Yeah. My inability to see straight, to drive straight, to avoid the barriers, to not put the key in the car, all of those things I'm responsible for, even though I had not the, uh, the inclination to not do so. I, I, I lost the self awareness and self-control to not do it. But the reason I lost it it's because of the choices that I made in the first place. I decided to, to drink it down. And so God is punishing Pharaoh because Pharaoh had a duty the very first time and he's already in sin. So part of the punishment uh, is not just, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to take your firstborn. I'm going to take these slaves away from you. Part of the punishment is hardening his heart. Well, I mean, hardening his hardening his heart was following his own inclination. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that he removed his restraint if you want to, but here's the here's where this goes back to in the beginning. God, <laughs> if if Pharaoh is inclined towards evil, and God is restraining that evil, and what we mean by hardening of the heart is God no longer restraining that evil. Then a God's actually robbing him of his free will when he's restraining him. Hmm. And B you're back where I am saying, yeah, we're the hearts of our, 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 all we want to do is sin apart from the grace of God. I don't know if that's true. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't think um, you probably would. If you would, you wouldn't be a very good uh, observant Orthodox Jew. But I try my best. I'm sure I don't you know do. How good I am, but I try my best. Um, I, I have. Um, oh, so l- l- let ahead, me guys. just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this 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 gets into a little bit kabbalistically speaking, because Jews have a different, at least Orthodox Jews have a different attitude. Um, when we talk about God's punishment or God's anger or God's all of that stuff, um, from a Kabbalistic point of view, 
the essential quality of God is unity, oneness. Yeah. And all of these other attributes that we talk about don't really exist in God. They're human, human superimposing human terms and categories that don't exist in God. In God, there's no difference between justice and mercy. It's all a piece of the same whole. So that's very much a human superimposing categories because they can't, we can't comprehend wholeness of God and unity of God. It's beyond the comprehension. Just like um, what we're talking about or you know, referring to, the internal contradiction, the apparent contradiction between free will and God's omniscience. If God knows everything that's going to happen from now till eternity, there's no space there for human free will. On the other hand, human beings have to have free will for God to exist. If human beings don't have responsibility for their behavior, we don't need God. You just equivocated on free will and responsibility. Explain. Well, you said that we have to have free will. And then you said, if we don't have free will, we don't have responsibilities if they are the same thing. What if we are responsible because God says we're responsible? What if we're responsible because because what you're what you're essentially doing is saying there is a law above God. It would be unjust of God to judge me if I don't have libertarian free will. And therefore, God has to submit to that justice above him. And, and, or, and if he doesn't, then he's bad. Well, where did this law come from? No, no, that, that's, a Christian, that's a Christian paradigm. That's not what a Jew would say. Okay. So what would, what would a Jew say, Dad? Yeah, exactly. A Jew would say it's beyond our comprehension that free will and omniscience both exist, even though God knows what we're going to do in advance, because for God, past, present, and future don't exist. It's all part of a seamless whole all at the same time. I am but that we I still, am. But we, but we still exercise free will. So I have the ability a- to choose that broccoli. <laughs> would you say it's a paradox or would you say it's a contradiction? I would say it's beyond the comprehension. Ineffable. Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing is because we're that, not God. that paradoxes uh, or mysteries anyway are beyond our comprehension. And we also cannot understand contradictions. But one thing we know about contradictions is that if something is a contradiction, both sides of it can't both be true. But they can be. No, two, two sides of a contradiction cannot both be true. In God's mind, they can. No, they cannot be. If if that's the case, then when God says, in the beginning, God, he can also mean at one and the same time, uh, in the ninth inning, Clayton Kershaw. I'm not sure I follow that. Okay, here's what I mean. Words have meaning. Yes. And the, the essence of logic is that A cannot be A and not A at the same time in the same relationship. doesn't matter what you fill in for A. 
whatever it is the first time, it has to be the second time. So when the word in is there in our Bibles, it can't mean out. If, if contradictions can be true, it can mean both things. And then we can't know anything because everything means it's opposite. The value and the function of the logic and the, and the, the truth that no two truths can contradict each other is that that's how we know what falsehood is. If you and I are having a discussion, uh, Ron, and uh, you get, or I, let's make it me, I get stuck uh, and you you paint me in this corner and I either have to say uh, blue is red or red is blue. And I say, well, blue is red and we just don't understand it. Isn't that a cop-out? Here's, here's my problem. Um, it's not either or. Right. I believe in absolutes. In creation, in the human world, there are absolutes. And we know what those absolutes are, in my case, from Torah. And oral Torah and Talmud and the sages. In your case, it's the Gospels and what you call the New Testament. And possibly part of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, that's something for you to you know, decide. Um, but in, in God, God is the absolute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure is. And all of those categories aren't relevant in the beginning when there's just God. Those absolutes have to happen here. And now because God concretized creation. So is God one or is he? Yes. Relatively one. No, no, he's one. Okay, then that's absolute, and that's before the creation. Yes. So it's not that the absolutes are only here, but they're not in the mind of God. I'll have to think about that. (laughs) Corey, take it away. That's good. That's a good start. Um, Yeah, we we happen to live in Santa Clarita Valley, where Uh the Master's Seminary is, Master's College. So you you know Johnny Mac, John MacArthur. Sure. he, uh, I've had the chance to have a couple conversations with him. A bunch of my friends, uh, well, a handful of my friends are professors there and a bunch of my friends have gone there. And Johnny Mac has a tendency to see everything through a very categorical lens. And where I do think that there are certainly some either ors, you know, either Jesus was raised from the dead or he wasn't. Um, there are some very primary either ors in the story, but I just don't think the entire Bible uh, requires that lens. Well, do you think the Bible can contradict itself? No, no. Okay. I just don't think that, you know, the, the most obvious one, we're talking about Genesis, uh, Johnny Mac is big on seven literal 24-hour day creation. Mm-hmm. Right. But... The way I, you know, I shared this uh, analogy before is that, you know, when the Israelites were hearing the word of God from God himself, I don't think a single one of the Israelites thought, I wonder if he's talking about a literal seven day, 24 hour, (laughs) you know, that's absolutely true. But you know what? I can guarantee you this. Not a one of them was thinking, oh, he must mean eons or epics. Right, right. Yeah, there's strange. When Moses says Yom, they're going to think day. Yeah, yeah. 
but that's how I became a young earth guy. I was an, I was an old earth guy for decades and I was in my old Testament class in seminary. And my professor said, if you want to understand what a text means, you need to figure out what the original audience was being told by the original author. And I went back and I thought about Moses sending that message out while they're, while they're on the Exodus and saying, now uh, in the beginning or on the first day, I thought there's not a chance any one of these people is sitting around the fire in, in the Israeli camp saying, yeah. oh, he must be talking about an age. It, it just wasn't um, a paradigm that they were hearing. this. But, right. But, but my point, my point is that if we're spending all of our time talking about a day or an age or an eon or a whatever, we're missing why that story was told in the first place. Absolutely right. I say that all the time. I say, you know, there's there's so much more here. One thing we do know that Moses wasn't doing, he wasn't saying, let's get this down because in 2000 or in 6000 years, we're going to need this information to do battle with Darwin. Yeah, you know, there was a very important message there for the original audience. It's important to us that I again believe begins with in the beginning, God. If we really got that, right, right, it would change everything. Um, I, I before we move on to some social and political topics, um, I heard you say. By the way, uh, your podcast I, I've been really enjoying. Jesus changes everything, and it's uh, du- Dunamis Fellowship. Yes, Dunamis, which is a Greek word for power. Okay. Yeah, Jesus changes everything. You know, it's a really terrific program. Uh, I, I, I respect what you do because you you spend a little bit of time talking about topics of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but every episode I've heard so far, you give a five minute um, Bible study. You talk. Mm-hmm. I heard a little bit of, on Nehemiah. I heard a little bit on uh, Ezra. Um, so it's it's really cool. I, I commend it to, to those. I'm going to have to listen to that podcast because my constant question with Corey and with every Christian I've met through Corey is, uh-huh. why do you need Jesus? Wait, 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 Dad, don't get it. I didn't even finish my thought. Uh, I'm I, sorry. I apologize. Okay. That's all right. Um, so I think it was on G, um, I think it was on Jesus Changes Everything that I heard you say. Oh, no, no, no. It was an interview that you did that you said you were working on a, a new book loosely called The Scandal of Grace, The Grace of Scandal. Are you still working on that? Mm, it's a little bit more back burner right now. I've got other projects going on. OK, OK. Well, for what it's worth, uh, I, I would commend it to, you know, uh, to my friends from church, especially and others who are curious to hear, you know, um, to hear a really well thought out point of view, both biblically as well as topics of the day. Speaking of topics of the day, yes, sir. Um, uh, Dad, you had uh, you had a question that's more topical for RC. Well, I did. Okay. Um, maybe it's an observation. You know, I have a theory. Every question is really a statement. Okay, so acknowledging that, um, I'm kind of amused by fundamentalist Christians. Um, what I find most amusing is that they're pro-life on abortion. And I would say the majority of Christians that I've met personally and that I've read are pro-choice on everything else that affects our politics. And I don't get that. I don't get how you can 
strongly advocate for the sanctity of life, as I do, when it comes to abortion, and be against universal health care, or resist COVID restrictions, or um, I'll think of another example in a minute. Um, I, I don't get that. Well, let me see if I can help you a little bit. Um, for me, anyway, it's my contention that the in the Bible, in Genesis chapter uh, 11, I believe, it's either 9 or 11, uh, when Moses comes off the boat is when God establishes civil government. When he says to Moses, he says, I always get Moses Noah, and Noah. Yes. He says to Noah, if a man sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, right? This is, this is God's uh, imprimatur, his establishment of civil government, which in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, uh, they're called God's ministers of justice. Uh, Paul says that they were not given the sword in vain, but that they're given the sword to punish evildoers. Well, uh, a lot of conservatives like me who are actively pro-life uh, believe that the function of the government uh, is to be an agency of force restraining people from acting with force against other people. So that, for instance, uh, if my neighbor wants to, uh, well, let's, let's use uh, New York City. If my friend in New York City wants to uh, buy a big gulp at his local convenience store, uh, and I think to myself, that's really not a good idea. It's not healthy. It's bad for his teeth. It's bad for his gut, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, nevertheless, it's not my call. It's not my decision. This man makes his own decision. If he wants to buy the big gulp, he can buy the big gulp. However, if he makes a decision that is, uh, that is an act of violence against another human being, then that is a legitimate function of the government to restrain that. If he tries so, to steal from somebody, the government should stop him. If he tries to kill somebody, the government should stop him. I agree with you. But so, so let, 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 let's take that. Let's take that. Um, if you choose to have a political rally where most people are not wearing masks and they're going to enter my community and spread disease. I was thinking of the masks. Yeah. You know, that's violence against me. Well, it is, although you certainly have to concede that it's on both sides of the aisle because uh, I, I'm not, uh, you know, Democrat, it, yeah. Republican. Yeah. I, I, I would say the same thing about protesters. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, I mean, I, I, take, don't, take I don't know that position. I can make a, a case and, and I don't know that I would even buy the premise that uh, anti-maskers is a conservative perspective or something. We talked, about, we talked about Johnny. What's that? Corey brought up Johnny Mac before. And as a Jew, I really am not interested in John MacArthur, MacArthur yeah. much at all until he made the local paper running a super spreader event in his church and bragging about how he was resisting Newsom's COVID restrictions. Right. Uh, he's running a super spreader event that is as violent in terms of the ability to spread disease in my community as any political rally or protest. 
I think that, that what, what RC just said is that that's not necessarily a conservative position. Yeah. In fact, I think that, yeah, there are individuals and subgroups of the larger conservative movement that don't really hold what we would think of as classical conservative positions. Right. I'm not asking RC to defend conservatism. I'm asking him how right. he can They're justify people who are extreme anti, you know, committed to, to, to ending abortion. Hmm. And on the other hand, they're pro-choice when it comes to spreading disease. I don't know that I can. I'm not, I don't have a particular interest in it. Yeah. Uh, I do know this. I do know that a failure to have a proper view of mask wearing is pretty well irrelevant to having a proper view about abortion. That there may be an inconsistency there, but that doesn't, you know, I'm not going to say, well, you know, it's a mystery and it all resolves in God's mind where we can't see it. Uh, if there is a contradiction there, then uh, it's pretty clear which side I'm going to get want us to get rid of. And that's going to be the anti-masking side, because we know we know for certain the whole point of abortion is in the intentional taking of the life of the unborn child. Even though none of the no one's no conservatives are taking off their masks with the intent of making anybody sick. They may have a dispute about whether or not anybody will get sick. And there is a lot of back and forth on those issues. And it's, it's you know, Corey was talking about my podcast. I can't believe I've managed to do this, but I have the whole history of COVID. I've been saying, yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know whether it's really dangerous or not. I don't know whether it's whether masks help or not. I don't know whether uh, we should be staying at home or not. I don't know. It's, that's not something that I have an answer to. Well, but, but again, go ahead. Get, sorry. I think you get to a certain point, though, where. Forgive me, you know, if this is too harsh, but I think it, it you get to a certain point where there's enough empirical data that you're choosing cognitive dissonance as for, for whatever reason that might be. But, you know, th there are times when facts are still facts, you right. know, like, I don't think anybody's here to say that, you know, listen, people are, are being don't diagnosed. Believe in alternative facts. <laughs> um, people are being diagnosed. Now it's, you know, thousands, thousands are, you know, it's, it's north of a thousand that are dying per day. It's, you know, hundreds of thousands are being diagnosed per day. Now the numbers are very high, um, but we do have the numbers. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn about this because I know that there's been such an attack on facts and the establishment and elites and, you know, the, uh, enough toxins have been introduced into the mix where we can't, you know, all of a sudden trust experts that right. there's nothing in it for them to lie. You know, like I, I don't, so mm. there's a lot of uh, intermingling subjects here, but uh, to bring it back to the, you know, my original pushback is that we have enough, we do have enough information to say, all right, well, I'm going to wash my hands more than I, 
I, I always wash my hands, but I'm going to wash my hands a little bit more. I'm right. going to respect that six feet in a grocery store. I'm going right. to wear my mask when I got to go to the work. Like, yeah. I don't see how this stuff, we have enough information to basically not make. And when I go to synagogue, we're going to limit the capacity to 50% and we're going to be six to 10 feet apart and wear masks during the service. Yeah. I go to, I go to an Orthodox Chabad service every Saturday morning and we practice all of the protocols. What, what do you think you would do, Ronnie, if they said you couldn't meet at all? Well, they did for for five months, mm-hmm. and we didn't. So I davened at home. Yeah, the Supreme Court just ruled on that. You that, know, so uh, I mean, but but you talk about intent, uh, the difference in, in intent. Mm-hmm. I have I have two responses. One. Um, part of my background was in, cri- in crisis response. I'm a professional mediator and I've mediated many disputes in high schools in New York City that resulted in murders between gangs, between racial groups, stuff like that. And one of the messages is that intent is important, but not nearly as important as impact. Mm-hmm. Impact trumps intent right so you may not have intended to spread disease but if you did that has more agency than your intention that's absolutely true however ronnie the question was not about what's going to happen the question was why would they be this way Mm. and all of a sudden even though intent may be lower on the scale of importance in terms of answering that question it's higher in importance why would they be that way? Because they're not seeking to do this and, and they're not seeking to harm people. Whereas the people who are getting procuring abortions are seeking to harm people. So certainly not enough that the consensus is they are harming people, whether they want to or not. Well, the consensus may very well be that, but that doesn't you didn't want to harm anybody when you drank and got into a car. Right. You didn't want to harm people. Right. But. You certainly should have known that that potential existed. Absolutely. And you you it's a culpable ignorance. And you can make the case that uh, these folks who aren't masking are guilty of a culpable ignorance. That may very well be. Uh, But if if you had to ask me, and this may be bias on my part, but if you had to ask me, what are the chances that masks help? Uh, versus what are the chances that a baby gets murdered every time an abortion is performed? They're not anywhere in the same neighborhood of close. Let me throw, let me throw something into the mix that'll complicate it even further. Oh, great. (laughs) Um, Why, why is aborting a one month old fetus murder? Because it's a human being. What makes it a human being? Is that a statement of fact or a statement of fact? It is a statement of fact. Uh, What makes makes anybody a human being, Ronnie? Because they're sentient. Okay, the one-month-old baby, unborn baby is sentient. I don't think he is. Really? No, I don't think a one-month-old baby is sentient. I don't think- One month, Dad, be specific. A one-month-old fetus. fetus. I understand what you're saying. This is inside the womb. One-month gestation. They're not sentient. Okay, so if someone is uh, has an uh, IQ of 10, they're not human? No, they're human. 
but they're not sentient. I don't know. Well, there you go. That dealt with that. What else you got? (laughs) (laughs) I would say this. Here's how you know something's human. It's alive and it's got human DNA. Mm. The only thing different between that one month old baby in the womb and you is time and growth. Not according to the Jewish point of view. Yeah. What's it say? According to the Jewish point of view, gestation is a period where the soul is slowly incorporated into the body. What makes a person a person is that they have a human soul, a nefesh ruach and neshama. It takes nine months for that human soul to be fully incorporated into the body. Hmm. So that a person is not fully a person until birth. In fact, there are even some rabbis, as a minority opinion, who would say that he's not a full person until he can say amen. Think well, there's a lot of people who would say that Jewish people aren't full persons. That's true, but they'd be wrong. And so are the <laughs> rabbis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a completely gratuitous uh uh, line in the sand. Uh, we know, for instance, that uh, Samson's mother is told not to uh, drink wine while Samson is in utero because of the Nazarite vows. So how in the Correct. world, if he doesn't have a soul, how in the world could it matter if his mom has uh, wine? Let me ask you another biblical question. Well, we should answer, answer that RCs. No, 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 no. This is the same question, but okay. a different example from the Bible. How would you explain the business of the sota? The what? The sota, drinking bitter waters. Oh. The wayward woman. Uh-huh. She's had, she's had extramarital sex, uh-huh. possibly. She's accused of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And the way we decide whether or not she's guilty or innocent is she drinks the bitter waters. Uh-huh. If she, in fact, had illicit sex... Both her and her baby get killed. Uh-huh. So one could say that God is giving the okay to abortion in the case God, of listen, God can kill anybody he wants because we're all guilty before him. Yeah, yeah, but why would one story be more... Um, determinative than the other. Because as I said, God can kill whoever he wants. He can kill babies in the womb every day, all day, as long as he wants, because every one of them are under his judgment. So so we don't have the freedom to do that. Why is the punishment for accidentally killing a baby in the womb a fine. Well, you know very well that that's a disputed text and that there are other other interpretations and translations that would argue, as I would, that in fact, it's quite the opposite. That There's a distinction between the harm coming to the woman that doesn't involve the loss of the child bringing the fine and the loss of the child going eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and the struggler loses his life. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth really don't mean that, but we won't get into that. That's a whole other conversation. It's a whole other conversation. Well, there's been a tendency, I think of it as a group proclivity in certain circles in American evangelicalism. Um, It's not 
unique to our time or our country, uh, to be fair, but to to hold to start with a political position or a social position and then to either ignore what scripture says about it or to manipulate scripture and back it into that that previously held mm-hmm. um, position. For example, uh, what year was it? I think it was 2012. And um, pastor, I respect him, uh, but but uh, and I won't say his name, but he did this on the topic of immigration. And he started with a very particular disposition on immigration. And he even used the first part of Leviticus 19, ignoring the rest of the chapter, that if you read the, the rest of the chapter, you would come to a very different conclusion about immigrants. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, number one, do you agree that this does in fact go on in, in Christian conservative in the, in the community? And if so, what are some areas that you see as problematic? Excellent question. Uh, and I would, I, I think the example you gave would be a perfectly legitimate one. Uh, I would say I see it also among evangelicals that tend to be more on the left side who start off with the premise that uh, it is a good thing for the government to take the wealth of one person and give it to someone who is in more need. Uh, And they end up uh, looking for biblical justification for this. And what they find in the Bible is that God, the Father, that Jesus, are are very much concerned and have a great deal of uh, uh, admonition toward us about treating the poor with care, about being giving and uh, all of that. And they completely miss the radical difference between someone voluntarily giving to someone in need and someone having their wealth taken by someone else and given to the person in need. That's a, a, a powerful, powerful example of exactly that, where you you take uh, God's commands for us to give to those who are in need and turn it into a justification for government welfare programs. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, I forgot the fellow's name, but the guy who runs Sojourners. Uh-huh, Jim Wallace. Well, yeah, Jim Wallace. I, I had the same issue with him. I, I, like, I wouldn't reserve it just for, for guys who are right-wing conservatives. I, I had the same problem with, with him at, at points where he already decided that he was going to have a certain political persuasion. In his case, he's, you would consider him politically liberal. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, this this concern isn't reserved just for guys that, that uh, are on the right side of the aisle. Well, and I would say, too— uh, uh, Corey, it's not just politics. It's it's our whole mindset yeah. where our propensity is always to see ourselves and our friends as the good guys and those outside as the bad guys and to have these two different sets of standards by which we judge. We yeah. do it all the time. I have a slightly different take on that. I agree with you that there's something wrong with using the Bible to justify social welfare programs instituted by the government. But there's also something wrong with using the Bible to dispute the government's right to do that. I don't think it's a biblical issue. Um, There's plenty of examples in the Bible of the central authorities under the name of God, and because God tells them to, 
to create programs that takes care of the widows, the orphans, the poors, and the proselytes. It's throughout the Bible. Um, and to use the Bible to justify one political position or the other, I think is equally uh, wrong. The, that's a political issue that should be resolved through politics and what's best for society. What's the pragmatic solution? And I would say that Jesus changes everything, that there is no question for which the Bible doesn't provide us the answer, no moral question of any kind for which we cannot derive the correct answer from the Bible. But that's not, that's not, it's not a moral question. It most certainly is a moral question whether no, no, or not we both, we the government agree. has a moral right to take money from me to give to my neighbor. Of course, it's a moral question. Okay, I'll accept that. Okay. I'll accept that. The government does have the right to take money from you. And where do they get that right? Where do they get the right? Yeah. It's a function of government. Says who? So the Bible says that government is there to punish evildoers. It doesn't say it's there to redistribute wealth. The Bible, the Bible says that government is there to organize society. Where does it say that? Where does it say it, it doesn't? I mean, it, it says it implicitly. Because <laughs> it doesn't say it anywhere. Actually, it explicitly says that it exists to punish evildoers. It doesn't say it's there to organize society. I disagree. No, I, I disagree. The fact, the fact, the fact that the fact that Torah creates a government structure. You know, the, the, the Torah does create a government structure and it establishes a system for caring for the poor. The gleaning system, as you are familiar with, of course. I am. But what you may not know is that if I fail to allow someone to glean the corners of my fields, what is the biblical, what, what, when God established this system, what punishment did God give the government to impose on those who don't allow gleaning? I have no idea. I'll have to look it up. Because there's none. <laughs> it's private. God says do this, absolutely. But there's no civil punishment for failure to do so. Just like in our day, God says care for the poor, but there's no government, there's no biblical government punishment for our failure to do so. It's interesting. I think we can dissect any number of issues um, on an issue by issue basis. I take your point that we tend to look at the folks who agree with us as the good guys and the folks who don't agree with us as the bad guys. But you know what? It makes it our job. I think it makes it our job to better understand those who disagree with us. Right. You know, one example, I had a great talk with a really good friend last night who voted for Trump. I've made no secret about, I, I hate Trump. I just, I hate him. And I hate him starting through a biblical lens everywhere we look in terms of what are virtues and what are anti-virtues, man, this individual just embodies the exact opposite of the fruit of the spirit or love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast, you know, just everywhere we look, there are six things which the Lord hates. No, seven, just everywhere we look in the Bible. But um, I can still ask my friend, he, he considers himself a regrettably having voted for Trump mm -hmm. uh, because like other friends, uh, another friend of mine said, you know, I just put him on mute. And then I can look at his, his actions, right? Uh, you know, don't look at his stinking Twitter. Don't look at it. You know, mm -hmm. 
um, because he likes what he did in Israel. He likes the tax, the 2017 tax. He likes the economy up until the pandemic. Um, and even he, he has serious concerns about the influence of the left and therefore likes the fact that there's an adversary. There's somebody fighting against the influence mm-hmm. of the left. So I get it. I understand that. Mm-hmm. What I don't understand, especially my friends from church who we agree that the Bible's authoritative, what I don't understand is folks who kind of lift up Trump as if he's some sort of hero or savior. It's just right. that's the, I can't I can't quite get there. Me neither. Yeah. I get it. I'm with you. So yeah. we must be the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, um, one last question. Did you did you have any questions for us now that we've talked for a bit? Did you have any so. questions for us? Okay. Well, w- one last question. Uh, where do you see things going from here? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I recently published a uh, brief piece on my website, rcsproljr.com, a little blog piece in which I answered the question. I, I put something up every day. And twice a week, I do what's called Ask RC. People can send in questions. And I answered this question. Did I think that COVID was going to create a massive cultural shift? And the, the, the essential thesis of my piece was it's far too late for that. Mm. That everything that we're afraid of, of uh, government intrusion and a, a sort of... Uh, taking upon themselves authorities that they don't have. We've had for decades. I actually told the story. I said, you know, um, in my lifetime, back during the Cold War, there was a country where they passed a law that no one could change their prices. They couldn't raise their prices. They couldn't give anybody a raise. And then they had... That's called Richard Nixon in 1971. Exactly right. Yeah. And then then they had a... uh, a new fella come in and he's told everybody in the whole country what temperature they had to keep their thermostat at. You know, people have short memories. The government is always overstepping its bounds and intruding places where it doesn't look. You have to pay a bribe today in America to put up a shed in your backyard. Yeah. They just yeah. call it a license, a license for the guy yeah. who comes Permit. over to check it. Pull permits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Um, well, so yeah, I see more of the same is the short answer. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I do want to take the moment to uh, give you a proper plug for Jesus Changes Everything, the podcast. Um, I also, oh gosh, I just, I really am enjoying growing up RC slash growing up with RC. Um, a couple of, you know, just, I, I think it, it do your, do your heart good to, tune into the podcast and what's the website again, RC? rcsproljr.com. Great. Sproul is S-P-R-O-U-L. O-U-L. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you and getting to know you better. Me too. Enjoy it very much, both of you. Yeah. All right, yeah, Pops. Me too. Send my love to mom. Tell her to behave herself. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, Please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.